book of Daniel. We're hanging out in Daniel, and uh, you can open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to be there again this morning. Uh, We're going to be there again next week as well, and perhaps the week after, I don't know. It's going nice and slow. Before I get into the into the meat of the message this morning, I uh, just want to share with you guys. I, I don't know if you're aware of this. I hope you are, especially if you've been here for a while. Uh, th- there are seasons in the spirit, just like there are seasons in the natural. You know, there, there, like spring, summer, fall, and winter. That's not just something that happens in Kentucky out by where you live. It, it, these sorts of things also happen in the Spirit as well. And we're, we are in a season right now where uh, the Father's heart is so near. Like, I don't know if you guys were, could you feel it this morning? Like, the heart of the Father is so near. And, and, but along with that, um, we're in a season right now where the voice of the Lord is really near. And it, it's crazy. It's crazy how good God is. Um, last week, we talked about how it's God's nature to speak and how He most commonly in the scriptures, oftentimes speaks through dreams. And then my phone blew up all week with you guys having dreams. How many of you all had like dreams this last week? Yeah, it's really crazy. Like we talk about it and then he just begins to speak. And is it anything new? Perhaps not. Maybe we just became more aware of what he was already doing. But beyond that, we're living in like a real, we're living in a moment right now where uh, prophetic stuff is just happening. It's really great. I, I love when this when there's this vibe going on in my life. And uh, so I'd encourage you, keep your antennas up. God is, is speaking in profound ways, and uh, He's putting His fingerprints on, on people's lives in a, in a real unique way right now. Uh, it, it's a season where uh, God's voice is, is near to people who have an ear for it. Um, that really has nothing to do with today's message, but it's good to just put that stuff out there sometime. Everybody happy? You guys tired? What's up? Is the coffee not kicked in? Yeah. Yeah, I want to um, I want to talk about one major thing this morning. Sort of piggybacking off of what I spoke on last week, uh, I want to talk about being an interpreter and, an tra- and a translator for uh, the voice of God to the culture that we live in. Um. One of the things that we see in Daniel chapter 2, I'm just going to run this down. We're not even going to put it on the big screen. Uh, and you can just kind of follow along in your Bible. And if you remember from last week, and hopefully, hopefully you've read this, and you have it, the narrative roughly committed to memory. But this is basically what happens in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked, wicked, demonized king, has a dream that disturbs him. It's, the Bible says that it troubles his spirit, and he comes up with this idea. He says, you know what, I need the interpretation of this dream. And not only do I want the interpretation, but I want all of my wise men, all of my magicians, all of my enchanters, I want them to give me the dream, tell me with a dream that I had, and then I want them to interpret it for me. The enchanters come back to him and they say, this is too difficult. No one can do this. Only the gods can do this sort of thing. And... Uh, 
Nebuchadnezzar says, well, if you don't do it, I'm going to tear you from limb to limb. You've got to love that, right? No pressure. You could lose your arms. Yeah. Did a little study on how the Babylonians did this last week. It's totally brutal. It's rated like PG-13 at least. If the camera doesn't move, it's, it's definitely rated R. So basically what they would do is they would tie four trees together. They would tie your arms to it. And while the trees are down, then they would cut the rope. And then the trees would go up like this and your arms come off. So this is the penalty for not being able to give Nebuchadnezzar what he wants. Hectic. Right? Hectic. And so Nebuchadnezzar's officials go to grab all the wise men and the enchanters and the magicians. And they go to dismember them. Daniel finds out about it and says, hey, time out. Why not let me have an audience with the king? He goes in before Nebuchadnezzar and says, you know what? Give me, a, give me an amount of time, and then I'll come back to you. I'll tell you your dream, and I'll tell you what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar does, of course, and Daniel receives revelation from the Lord, what the dream was, and he's able to interpret it. And last week we talked about how God is so kind uh, that he would speak to a wicked, demonized king. You know, we have these concepts of God or what it means... Um, to be someone who knows God. And um, we have concepts of what the voice of God is about and who he talks to. And, and Daniel chapter 2 pretty much shipwrecks all of our concepts of God and who he's talking to, you know. Uh, God is talking to wicked, demonized kings. And it's not just in Daniel chapter 2, 2,700 years ago. He's talking to wicked, demonized kings right now. Uh, God's talking to... Uh, people who love him, and God is talking to people who do not love him, even right now. And it's a real, it's, it's the kindness of the Lord. Uh, it's beyond the kindness of the Lord, it's just his nature. It's one of the things that the Bible declares over and over again is that God is a communicating, speaking, relational God. So when he created the heavens and the universe, he did it by speaking. And then he places Adam and Eve in a garden, and it says, the Bible says that God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the morning. And how many of you know if you're walking with someone, you're talking with them? It's odd to take a long walk and not say anything. So God is talking to Adam and Eve. He speaks creation into existence. And then uh, the Bible speaks most clearly to us. God has spoken most clearly to us in the form of His own Son. And so there's this thing that happens in the Scripture over and over again. One of the great themes of Scripture is that God is a communicating, talking God. He's not distant. He's near. He's huge. He's big. He's grand but he's near and he wants a relationship with everybody. And a lot of times we have these concepts that, you know, God is only for the super Christians, you know, the people who come and actually take notes on my sermons. You know, there's like three of you. And aren't you glad that God doesn't just speak to the super Christians? Here's the truth. God is speaking to the super Christians. God is speaking to people who read their Bibles. God is speaking to the people who will not take notes. God is speaking to people who have thrown their Bibles away. God is speaking to to men and women who love Him. And God is speaking to men and women who have done their very level best to separate every part of their life from Him. I mean, if He would speak to Nebuchadnezzar, He would speak to you. He would speak to anyone. And so one of the things that we drew out of that last week was, it's just the kindness of God. He's speaking to everyone. And one of the things that it lays upon me and it lays upon you is uh, is this idea that, What culture really needs is it needs Daniels who can interpret and translate what God is speaking to people who do not understand. So you understand there's 
thousands, if not millions of people right now all around us, and they're, they're living with a troubled spirit. They, can't, they cannot articulate why they have a troubled spirit. And the reason they have a troubled spirit is because God is speaking to them and they don't know what He's saying. In fact, they don't even know that it's God. If this makes sense. Does this make sense? And so what culture needs, among, among a lot of other things, one of the main things that our culture needs is it needs, it needs the church to be Daniel and to be a translator and to be an interpreter. So everybody in the room this morning is called to be a Daniel, to be an interpreter and a a translator. Because people around us, the people in your neighborhood, the people where you work, the people at your school, um, your bosses, uh, the governors in Kentucky and every other state, our very own president, they're hearing God. And oftentimes they may or may not know that it's God at all. Uh, It's really strange that God could talk to somebody and he would talk to them and they might not recognize that he's speaking to them or even know that it's God. Does this make sense? Um, because a lot of times we can be experiencing phenomena without even knowing that we're experiencing it. This happens all the time. Um, I was listening to NPR this week and the little Science Friday guy, you know, you guys, listen, the little geeky guy, hey, Science Friday. Yeah. That guy was on this, uh, this week, and he was talking about solar flares. Do you guys know what solar flares are? They're explosions that happen on the surface of the sun, and they, spin, they, they like shoot radiation into, the, into space, and a lot of it hits the earth. And sometimes there can be these storms, these solar flares, these storms on the surface of the sun, massive explosions, massive amounts of radiation coming at our planet at a million miles an hour. I don't know if that's correct, but it seems right. A million miles an hour. We don't know it, but things happen. Like, if it happens just right, it can knock power out in, in, a, in, a, in a, a power grid can just go out like that because there's, there was an explosion in the sun that we didn't know about. See, we're experiencing phenomenon all the time that we don't know anything about, and I wouldn't know anything about it except that I had an interpreter on Friday, on Science Friday, who told me about it. Otherwise, I would, I would sit at home and I would be watching... I'd be watching direct TV and it's not coming in right and I throw the remote and I call the company and I fuss at them. You know, these solar flares, they can mess up your direct TV. <laughs> they actually can. See, sometimes it's not their fault. But you'll think it's their fault. You'll live with a troubled spirit until someone on NPR can tell you what's actually happening. You could you can just be you could be eating a hamburger and have have the radiation from a solar flare hit you and you never even know it. You get up from eating that hamburger, you think, I don't feel too good. Does this make sense? See, stuff's happening all the time that we're, we're we live completely unaware of. I mean, this makes sense to me. I mean, this is just the way my brain works, okay? It is Memorial Day. People eat hamburgers, right? Tomorrow is. Yeah, so things are happening all the time. And so one of the things that the world needs is it, is it needs 
It needs an interpreter. It needs a translator. Because God has been faithful through all the generations to speak. He doesn't leave anybody out. Um, And it's one of the main aspects of being a, a prophetic church or living in a prophetic culture or being a prophetic person who lives and walks a prophetic lifestyle. One of the main aspects of the prophetic life is is that the prophetic lifestyle is a lifestyle of interpretation and translation. See, a lot of times we have a concept of, of the prophetic, of the prophetic ministry, and it goes like this, that the prophetic ministry is just like telling the future. It's just, you know, Miss Cleo, like 1996. People who were alive then remember that. But we have this concept of the prophetic sometimes, that the prophetic is just telling what's going to happen, like a fortune teller or something. But more common, most often, the prophetic is telling what is actually happening right now. It's defining what's, right, what's happening right now. And in order to define what's happening right now, you need an interpreter. You need a translator. Um, you read those passages like in 1 Corinthians 12, when it, when it gives that little list of those nine gifts of the Spirit. And there are all those revelatory gifts that sound really cool, right? We get all pumped up about it. We're like, man, yeah, the prophetic gift. I want that, you know. And, you know, I'd, I'd take a word of wisdom, I'd be willing to settle for words of knowledge. I don't know what discernment of spirits is, but it sounds freaky, so I'll take it. And then there's that one stuck in their interpretation. You're like, that's lame. No, not lame. It's, in, it's incredibly important. Have you ever had a dream that you didn't know what it meant? And we're troubled in spirit. Then tell me, do you want, do you want interpretation? Yeah, see, that's part of the, it's part of carrying a prophetic spirit. It's being able to define and say, you know, this is what's happening now by translating the voice of God for people. So it's an aspect of living a prophetic life. And it's a big part of what we're actually called to do, to be a Daniel. How many of you realize that if you're going to translate and if you're going to interpret for people, you, you might want to know the native language? It helps. I found that it helps, right? Yeah, if you're going to be able to interpret the voice of God, if you're going to be able to translate the voice of God for people, it actually helps if you know the mother language. Um, And here's the good news. Um, Everybody in the room this morning who who knows God and who has um, trusted Him with their life, uh, the Bible uses this sort of language for that transaction. When When you know God and you begin to trust Jesus for your life, not just your eternal life, but for the life right here and now. Uh, Jesus says that you were born again. I think it's really interesting that Jesus uses this language of, of born again. It's sort of second nature to us. And a lot of times we can read passages like John 3 where Jesus talks about being born again. And it's so common. It's, it's such a part of the southern vernacular of what it means to be a Christian that we just pass right over it and we miss the power. We miss the power of the image that Jesus is painting. Um, but I think it's so interesting. Jesus, Jesus says this. He says that coming into the kingdom is like a baby being born to its mother. That's what he says. See, and one of the, one of the implications of that, of that image is that the baby would grow, right? One of the implications of being born again is that the baby would grow. Uh, do you think that Jesus meant that people who come into the kingdom are like babies born to their mother, yet they never grow? Does anyone here believe that's what he was talking about? No, it's like, it's like a baby born to its mother 
but it would continue to grow and develop. You'd always be a son, you'd always be a daughter, but you wouldn't always be a baby. And part of a baby's natural development is learning the native language. Right? So everyone who's been born again has been born into a moment where they had the opportunity to learn the native language. And how did the baby learn the native language? In the most natural way possible. The baby learned the native language by nursing at its mother's breast while she held it, and she, spe- she began to speak to it. And she began to sing, sing her love over her baby, right? And everybody in the room would recognize that a baby who gets older but doesn't learn how to speak isn't developing right. We'd, we'd get concerned about that baby. We'd call specialists. Hey, my baby's four years old and isn't talking. Is this okay? The doctor would say, I don't know. Maybe you should bring him in. Let's have a look at him. So everyone born in heaven should be able to speak more than one language. I'd like to suggest this morning that English is actually not your native language. Heaven has a language, and in order for us to be interpreters to culture, we have to know heaven's language just in the same way that we know English. And learning heaven's language is actually one of the most elementary, basic, fundamental parts of what it means to know God. Like to be able to discern the voice of God and know what He's saying, that's an elementary, basic aspect of what it means to be a Christian. You can't can't grow in your faith. You can't grow as a son or a daughter without knowing heaven's language. And some of you might be sitting in a chair going, well, I wonder, like I know I trust Jesus with my life, so I wonder why I sometimes struggle to hear His voice. Or I wonder why some of my other Christian friends don't necessarily hear the voice of God. And I wonder why I don't always understand what God is saying or if He's talking to me and I feel somewhat confused. And one of the answers is this, is that it's actually possible to be born again and not know the language of heaven because the, because the church was meant to be the nurse. And in a lot of places, the nurse took the baby out of the father's arms and put him in a nursery with a Bible. And so they never got the father's voice. Does this make sense? So it's actually possible to have that experience but never be left in the Father's arms. If that's you, don't worry. He's really kind. He has a way of working everything out. He's really, really kind. So you might be thinking this morning, well, how, how do we learn the language of heaven? How do we learn the language of heaven? I want to I give you a couple things this morning. First thing I want to say is this, is that when we learn the language of heaven, we learn it in the Father's house and not at the Father's school. No baby goes to school to learn how to speak. Babies learn, babies, babies learn their, the language in their mother and father's house. And this is really, really important. Uh, to the degree that the church becomes more and more like a school is the degree to which we will become more and more educated, but more and more ignorant of the Father's voice. It's one of the reasons we go for a family atmosphere here. We're not going for a family atmosphere here just to hook people into something that they don't really believe. We're going for a family atmosphere here because it's the only thing that transforms the human heart 
is when the father is in the room loving his children. It's the only, it's the only thing. So how does, it, how, does, how does a person come to know their native language and become a translator? The way that you do this is that you come into the father's house and you receive his love. You cannot know the voice of God without knowing his love. See, every child learns to speak by listening to their mother at her breast. Quieted by her, by her love, she rejoices over them with singing. And it's actually an image of the Lord. It's really interesting that we kind of went into some ministry like that this morning. Um, the Father was singing over us this morning. We, we sang to Him and then He began to sing back. And it's in those moments that we begin to learn the language of heaven. And the language of heaven is always connected to the Father's love. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed after being a pastor for some time and then just living in God's house, is that people who really know the Father's affections for them are also people who know the Father's voice and can translate. No one who knows the Father's voice doesn't also know the Father's love. It's because you learn language by coming into His house. You learn language just like a baby when, when your mom or your wife was holding your brother or your son holding them right there. So being a translator for the world means that as a church, we need to be held in God's love. And what it means to be held in God's love, it means to be so anchored in the love of the Father that you don't just know it here, but you, you know it here and all the way down. That he, that, he's, that he loves me. That He's kind to me. That everything He wants for me is good. That even when He comes and places a demand on my life, He only places a demand on my life that will cause me to succeed and be better. It's one of the great tragedies is that people, people have divorced Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, from the presence of Jesus in Matthew 4. See, a lot of people will read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and they, they hear things like, love your enemies, and it's like, oh, it's so hard, I don't want to do that. You have to realize the only reason Jesus is asking us to love our enemies is not because he's trying to trick us so that he can smack us when we fail. He's saying love your enemies because it's actually the only real way to live a good kind of life. And the only way to enter into living that real and good kind of life is from an encounter with the presence of Jesus. You realize Matthew 4 comes before 5, 6, and 7. And at the, at the end of Matthew 4, it's where Jesus has this massive healing service where they bring all the sick and all the demonized to Jesus, and He heals everyone. He casts out all their devils, and then He begins to teach them the good way of life. See, you can't divorce, you can't divorce the command of Jesus apart from His kindness and His goodness and His presence in a person's life. There is something so essential about living in the Father's house. Being held in His love. And then some of you may be wondering, well, how do you know His love? It's somewhat abstract. Um, It's actually not abstract. And one of the best ways to come into knowing God's love is to direct your own heart and mind toward thankfulness. So it gets really practical here. If you want to know the love of the Father then just begin to direct your heart and mind toward how good God has been to you. Consider all the ways that He's been kind to you. Write them down. Isn't that what Oprah says? Write them down. Make a list. Write it down. There's something about thankfulness that that allows us to see the love of God and the kindness of God in our life. Because thankfulness requires to see and become aware 
of the degree to which that God has just been really, really kind. And by the way, He's been really kind to everyone in the room. Like, you, 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 maybe you had a hard life or maybe you had a good life, but woven in the midst of all of it is the kindness of God. Thankfulness. It's one of the best ways to come into knowing, knowing the love of the Father. And then connected that, anytime we turn our hearts and our minds toward thankfulness, it always releases us to a, it releases us to a place of, of worship. Uh, the psalmist says, enter his gates with thanksgiving, right? You come into his presence by being thankful. You come into his house. You come into the Father's house. In the kingdom of heaven, thankfulness is the password at the door. You know, a lot of times God feels a million miles away, but the truth of the matter is he's never further away than thankfulness. So you can, you want to get near the Father? How do you come into the Father's house? How do you, how do you become aware of his love? Well, you just, you enter his gate with thanksgiving in your heart. And it releases you, when you begin to really become aware of the degree to which God has been kind and generous to you, it, it allows you to be a person of worship. Anytime I see who God is, anytime I really see what He's done for me, the natural response is always worship. It's the natural response to anything great. I've taken my kids to lots of UK basketball games, and every time there's a dunk, the place goes wild. Why? It's awesome. Worship is the natural response to anything that's great. And so when I see the degree to which God has been kind to me, when I, when I really begin to see the degree to which God uh, has shown His affections for me, not in an abstract way, but in a real way, like bailed me out, blessed me with good things. Worship is the natural response. And so you come into the Father's house. And then, then this cycle begins to get even better because when we give our heart, He begins to give us His heart. That's what happened this morning. We began to sing the chorus on Hannah's song. You know, glory to the King of Heaven. Like when the... All these harmonies are in here. I was getting wrecked. But the church just began to sing that to him. And, and then the King of Heaven began to sing his response over us. There's always a response. When we respond to him, he will always respond. And so the Father comes in the house. And we see it in Scripture over and over. If you remember the woman who came to Jesus and she poured out her perfume all over him, she poured out $40,000 worth of perfume on Jesus. It's crazy. The Bible says she poured out perfume that was worth a year's wages. Here in Campbellsville, that's like 40 grand. If you live in New York City, it's like 100 grand. But we're in Campbellsville, so 40 grand. (laughs) Yeah, what would cause a woman to pour out $40,000 of oil on Jesus in one moment? She had become aware of the degree to which that God had been radically kind to her. You know? And then here's the great part. It's that thing of Jesus always responds. So she pours out $40,000 of perfume, a year's wages on Jesus. And then some of the disciples are like, hey, you know what? You shouldn't have done that, which is really a great thing to say, you know, after the oil's out. (laughs) Then we bring it up, right? Um, The disciples say, you know, we shouldn't have done that. We should have saved it, sold it, and given it to the poor. And then Jesus says, Jesus rebukes them. And she, he says, she's done a beautiful thing. And in fact, it'll always be written down. It'll always be remembered. You always have the poor. What she's done can't be taken away from her. And so she gives to the Lord based upon her awareness of how kind that God has been to her. And then Jesus begins to respond to her by defending her. You know, it's like, wow. How many of you would like to have Jesus defend you? Like, worship is one of the ways that you get the defense of God in your life. 
It really is. Uh, and, and worship defends a person's life in a couple ways. I don't have this in my notes this morning, but in Romans chapter 1, it talks about how people could see God based upon creation. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Who God is has been clearly manifest based upon creation, but they neither glorified Him nor thanked Him, and their minds became dull, and they made graven images out of sticks and stones, and they worshipped Him. Why would a person bow down to a rock? It's because they never gave God what He was due based upon what they've clearly seen. See, there's something about worship that insulates the mind. And then beyond that, when we begin to respond to God based upon His goodness in our life, he begins, to, he, he begins to defend us. He'll speak the defensive word over our life. It's the reason that worshipers just go a little further and have it a little better often. I, I've seen people who are absolutely goofy, almost zero wisdom in their life, uh, do just really, really ridiculous things, uh, take their money, spend it in a hundred ways that aren't okay, um, I mean, I mean, Dave Ramsey would pass out, you know. <laughs> he really would. Dave Ramsey would just, he would stroke out. That little vein right here would just. <laughs> but because they're worshipers, God will come through for them. And he will speak the defensive word over their life. I, I've seen it. How close have I seen it? In my house, I've seen it. Heather and I have done things that would make Dave Ramsey stroke out and God, God has bailed us out. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons he's bailed us out is just because we've tried to live our lives with a thankful heart before him and, and we've tried to live our lives with open expression for his goodness. Not a, not a hidden expression either. So how do, we, how do we know the Father's love? So you can't, love, you can't learn the native language outside of the Father's house and outside of the Father's embrace. And the first way you, you begin to know the Father's embraces is just through a thankful heart that yields worship to the to the king when we worship it 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 positions us to be held in love and when we're held in love we're positioned to hear and learn his language and along with that choosing love always, always, always puts us in kingdom realms. Anytime a person chooses love, it always positions us and puts us in kingdom realms where he is. It's, it's, the, reason, it's the reason that if you, want to, um, if you want to quickly pull the plug on the voice of God in your life, just begin to give yourself to unyielded selfishness and the passions of your heart. Because when we begin to give ourselves to unyielded selfishness, we're instantly outside of the realm of love where He lives. And it's like, it's like turning around on the Lord. Third way to really move into that place of knowing the Father's embrace, Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 18. He says, he says if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to receive it like a little child. And He says, if you don't receive it like a little child, you won't enter in. And I think it's interesting, again, that Jesus is, is using this language of childlikeness to talk about entering into the kingdom, entering into the Father's realm, entering into the Father's house where you learn His native language. Jesus says, if you won't receive the kingdom like a little child, you'll surely not get in. And um, I've heard a lot of really goofy teaching about uh, pursuing a childlike lifestyle. Um, 
And I just want to say right up front that pursuing a childlike heart before the Lord really doesn't have anything to do with like falling on the floor into the fetal position and looking for a pacifier. It has everything to do with, with having a yielded heart that is utterly dependent on God. Just utterly dependent on God. And here's the, here's the other thing, too. Uh, the, you realize that kids are completely dependent upon their parents, right? That's what, that's what childlike faith is all about. It's, it's ultimately who I am and my security. It depends on my father. Um, and especially the smaller the baby is, the more it depends on its, on its parents. Like you could take a day-old baby, you take it away from its mother and father, you take it away from watchful care, that baby will not last long. And, and the thing about dependent childlike faith, the, depe- the thing about that kind of dependence that I really want to get across this morning is it is not a heavy yoke. It is, you realize that children aren't even aware that they're being dependent upon their parents. It's, it's, uh, it, is, it is an unanxious faith. Does that make sense? See, I, I've, I've, heard, I've heard this childlike stuff taught before, and it made me more anxious than before I heard it, if that makes sense. It's like, you just got to be dependent on God. You, oh, I'm getting nervous. You know? It's like, yeah, I know I need to be dependent on God. I'm not entirely sure how to do that. But kids, are, the kids, who, are, kids who have good parents aren't walking around going, I wonder if my mother and father will take care of me. It's actually not even a thought in their brain. It's, it's such a sure spot. It, it's, it, they wouldn't even know that it's not possible for their parents to take care of them. That's Jesus' light burden. It's His easy yoke. So being dependent on God isn't about like stirring up effort, and it isn't about trying to find some ridiculous thing to do to test it out. It's about living with an unanxious spirit before God and saying, God, everything I am, it just depends on you. Like, I'm going to put my feet to things, but ultimately, God, I'm just, you're going to care for me. And ultimately, what it means to be a mature Christian, it means that we become more and more aware of our dependence on God. Like, being a mature Christian doesn't mean that we become more and more confident and who we are. It actually means the longer you know Jesus, the more and more you're aware of what He has done, what He is doing, and what He absolutely has to do for this thing to work out. Being, being a mature believer doesn't mean growing in an independent spirit. Which is easy to do. It's easy to, it's easy to live life with God for a little while, and begin to believe that we, we've got him figured out. In fact, one of the most disheartening things for me as a pastor um, is the degree to which so much of the teaching in the church right now uh, sounds like math formulas and calculus formulas. It really does. And it, and it, sa- it, makes, it makes, God seem, um, makes God seem like he's something that can be grasped. I can assure you, he cannot be grasped. There, there's an aspect of who God is that is absolutely unknowable. He's uncontainable. There's, a, there's an aspect of Him that is mysterious beyond all of our intellectual abilities to conceive of mystery and goodness and kindness. And so growing in, 
growing in, in Christianity, growing in the faith, maturing as a, as a believer, maturing from the baby, maturing to a full-grown woman, a full-grown man in Jesus means growing in our awareness that we really do need Him. And it means also growing in our, in our awareness that we absolutely in some ways do not know Him. Am I, re- I hope I'm not wrecking you guys right now. Like what the church needs is it needs another dose of mystery. Like you can absolutely count on God and then you can absolutely count on Him to be way bigger than you've ever conceived. So that's the problem with math, math formulas is that they get too small. It reduces the irreducible. Yeah, living with childlike faith means it means living with an unanxious heart. But it also means living with an uncynical heart. Children are not cynical. Teenagers are cynical. <laughs> Adults are cynical. Especially Americans. We're we're like the most cynical people on, on the planet right now. And um, this actually militates against being able to come into the Father's house and feel His love. Uh, And here's the thing. The reason it works this way is because um, cynicism gets gets a grip in people's life because of disappointment. So that's all that's all cynicism is. It's dreamers who got disappointed along the way somewhere. And so cynicism becomes a defense mechanism to keep myself from being vulnerable ultimately to a good God who will take care of me. And so I'll choose cynicism and then that lets me have separation and that lets me play the too cool for school card. It's a real tragedy because as long as you want to play too cool for school, you can play too too cool for school and stay outside of the Father's house. Even worse, you can live inside the Father's house and not even know it. You can be held in you can be held in his arms and and it's the thing that our culture is multiplying right now. Yeah. So what does it mean to be a translator of heaven? It means it means living with an unanxious heart and it means living living from a spirit that hasn't been polluted by cynicism. Because here's the deal: there's no one cynical in heaven. No one, no one in heaven is cynical right now. Uh, because everyone is absolutely confident in the goodness of God. Cynicism is the too cool for school card that says, yeah, I know what's really going to happen. But no one in heaven has that attitude. And in order to interpret the language of God, see, God is always speaking a word of hope. Like right now, He's speaking a word of hope. Like even to people who are far from Him and don't know Him, God is speaking words of life and words of hope. And there's nothing... There is absolutely no way to tie in words of life with words of cynicism. Like that, that heart, will, it, it doesn't translate. It, it ruins the translation every time. And so part of what it means for us as we endeavor to be a prophetic church and to, to foster a prophetic culture and to be the sort of people who can, 
interpret the dreams and the visions and the voice of God in culture, what it means is, it means that we need to be fully wacky, completely, totally drowned in the Father's love, and completely, absolutely divorced from a cynical heart. Thanks, Lord. Hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we stand up? I want to pray for us.